0: So we've been in this series, Whatever Happened to the Power of God, here for about a month now, and uh, starting to examine what it is that has caused the power of God to cease. And there's something in it that I wanted you guys to pick up on, and I think you have because I know many of you guys have talked to me after service or throughout the week and stuff and commented on some of the things that, you know, sometimes what's right in front of you is the least obvious thing. You know what I'm saying? Like, because it's been there and been that way for so long, we don't realize it. But essentially, when we've looked at what, what's happened here is we began to look at where did God go? Certainly, God didn't go anywhere. It's kind of like, you know, I hate this terminology because it's completely unscriptural. but I, yet I understand what they mean. Like, you'll have a group of people together for a prayer service, and then the, the power of God will move in that service, and what do they say? Well, God showed up. Like, oh, well, that's nice. Where was he the rest of the time? Well, of course, he was always there. And so the terminology I hate, I don't get too hung up on it. That's not true. You guys know I'm overly analytical and get hung up on words too much. But, but it's like we have a system today that has taken God and formed him into an image that is much more palatable, a God of which that we can worship on our own accord, the way that we want to. Now, let's go back a little bit and let's break this down. We started with looking at the systematic structure. We talk about a lot of these mainline denominations. where and We've talked about that verse out of 2 Timothy where they have a form of godliness but deny its power. Is that we have taken this idea of God and we've created this pseudo-God that we worship by doing a bunch of different things in an effort to please this God. But yet, the God of the Bible was personal All throughout Scripture, he constantly had interaction with his people in varying ways. Ultimately coming to the fulfillment in the New Testament through Jesus by the giving of the Holy Spirit, where now believers today are the temple of the Holy Spirit. See, the temple was the place where the presence of God uh, stayed and people would go to him. But yet now, we are that temple. He is with us. All the time. But we want to change that and we take that away and make it more about the system of worship, the system of, of structure of how we do different things. That's true on many, many levels. One of the levels is we have this ritualistic thing where we go in there, sometimes we light candles, sometimes we stand up, sit down, take communion, all of that kinds. Of we've We've made a God out of the things that we do. And then you've got a system of which where we've eliminated God and we put man at the forefront, and we basically worship him. In the sense that we are trying to figure out what makes people show up. Because you know you're doing a good job if people show up. It's kind of like the movies. How do you know if a movie is doing well? The amount of people that bought tickets. That's how you measure it. Put on a concert. Is the concert good? You measure it by how many people show up, right? We've done that with church, and the problem is is there's no variable that actually makes that successful. Because you can have a bunch of people coming, but it doesn't mean that they're actually transforming their lives into the image of God. And so we've taken that and we said, okay, if we do these certain things, we'll get more people coming, thus we'll make more disciples. And we talked about that. We've talked about all of these different things to a point where we've, we've really got to look at it and say, what has happened? And what has happened is we've lost the heart of God is we've got a compromising church, and we read about that last week, where the church today no longer calls sin, sin. They'll tell you that you don't talk about sin directly. You can mention it in passing, but don't talk about it directly. Certainly don't talk about the blood of Jesus. Because that is too strong of imagery for the modern believer. And think about it, if you never grew up in church, and you hear about the blood of Christ, those words are foreign to you. That makes no sense. Why is there a blood of Christ? Why was he crucified outside that he was a bad guy? We don't know, but we assume that people do. And we'll use words like, you need to be washed in the blood. If you didn't grow up in church, you're heading for the exit. Because he's like, I don't know what this means, but I'm not sticking around to find out. You see, we use these terminology, but the, the principles are true. But we've taken that out, we've whitewashed it, we've tried to make it more palatable. We want to make sure that people can come. And that they feel comfortable here. Not just here. Please understand, when I say church, I'm talking big C church, not this church. We want people to feel comfortable. The problem is, is when it comes to the things of God, there's nothing comfortable about it. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. The cross is not a lazy boy. He didn't say, listen, go sit in that recliner, watch a little TV, eat some ice cream, bring the buckets to church. That's not what he said. He says, take up your cross and follow me. The method of which Jesus sacrificed himself is the same method that he wants us to sacrifice our flesh, our desires, our wants, and pick up his desires and his will and his wants, what he wants for us. But we don't want to do that. We want to be comfortable. We want a form of godliness, but we we don't want to mess with the power of God. Because when you get into the power of God, things start moving. The people around you begin to change. The things around you begin to break down. Because you have no choice. When you look at, study these revivals that have taken place, one of the things that is always a catalyst in it is that there is a measure of repentance that goes on. And when I say measure, I mean a massive measure. They will enter into a service. And I'm talking about the great awakenings and all of this. And we will look at some of this stuff. But when they go back there, people crying out to God in repentance, because the Holy Spirit is moving upon them, and they recognize that they are a sinner. It wasn't because any of those people were just really good orators or great preachers or any of that kind of stuff. It wasn't because they set up special programs. Could you imagine, think about this, the first century church, right? Jesus has ascended, the apostles are going around, they're setting up churches in all these cities, and then they get a group of committee people together in an environment of which you literally are being killed for your faith. And imagine if they got 10 or so people together in one of these church committees, first century, and they're like, okay, guys, listen, we need to reach people with the gospel because Jesus said so. We're like, yep, that's right. And you know what we need? We need to really kick in children's ministry. And we should get a water slide. That would really draw them in. We would, they would never say that kind of thing, but that's the methods of which we use today. We try to entertain people. We try to make them comfortable. We want them to feel good here. I want people to feel good because the Spirit of God is upon them, leading them. I feel good about the work that Christ has called me to do. And you should feel good about that too. For no other reason. I don't want to be comfortable in church. I do not want to hear sermons that make me feel better. Because if you're not growing daily, you are dying gradually. We have to get back to the heart of God where He's constantly pruning us. He's constantly adjusting us and changing us. And we looked at the, the church of Ephesus, and we're talking about Revelation uh, chapter 2 and 3. You had the compromising church that just kind of cast some stuff aside and put up with some of the different things they shouldn't have been putting up with. They put up with sin, they put up with this other stuff. But you have the church of Ephesus where God's like, hey, you guys did, good, did pretty good, but this I have against you, that you have lost your first love. You see, that was a church that was so enthralled with the very Word of God and the very works of God coming from extremely pagan land. And we're the, one of the seven wonders of the world, the Temple of Artemis. Janet talked about that this morning. The Temple of Artemis is there. And they are worshiping, and it's a sexual thing, and there's a whole bunch of different bad stuff that is going on. And yet, here you've got a church in this land that is thriving. When Timothy is pastoring that church, it is over 50,000 people. That is a big church. And yet, when Jesus shows up, and by all metrics, they're doing well, right? 50,000. Y'all, you got to church 50,000. You're doing all right. What are you doing? You're putting on seminars and selling tickets so people can learn how to do what you just did. And then Jesus sh- shows up and says, listen, I got some issues here, guys. You've lost your first love. What happens is we get so comfortable in what we're doing. So comfortable in where we are. So comfortable in... We're saved, and we're in, and hopefully people will come along with us. We get so comfortable in that, that we've lost the heart of God. And that's what we've got to get back to. But the question is why, and the question is how. Why does this happen, and how do we change it? So let's go back to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Because there's one of these words in here that really jumps off the page. And I made it jump off the page. Starting in verse 1. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, and unthankful. They're unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And from such people you should turn away. Thankfulness is something that we don't have anymore. You see, we take everything for granted in this country. We are in the middle of a major disaster. And you know what's, what's happened? Nobody's gone hungry. You take this disaster in another country, and people are dying. The only people dying during this disaster are the idiots that went around the, uh, the road barricades kind of get what you deserve there. Because we take everything for granted. All things are provided here. If you're hungry after service, what do you do? Go get you something. Go to the store. Go to a restaurant. Do whatever you want. If you're sick, what do you do? I'll go to the doctor. I'll take a pill. I'll do whatever I need to do. You see, we have become so commonplace. We've made God so just kind of whatever, a part of what we do, that we're no longer thankful to Him. All the other descriptions here are things like, yep, yep, I can, I can take this stuff and I can see how these people are doing this thing. But really, if you break it down, this is all of us. Because imagine what would happen if we had a heart of gratitude towards God for being here, period. Like, what if the way that we show God our gratefulness to Him was just simply through church attendance. And it meant that much to God. Like, God meant that much. Now, I'm just using that as an example. But what if that, you'd never miss. It doesn't matter if there's a ball game, a family get-together. It doesn't matter. You would never miss because it's like, well, I want to show God I'm grateful, and this is the only way I can do that. Now, that's not the case, but, but that's an example. Guys, you see, what's happened here is we've lost the heart of God because we're not thankful for what He's done at all. And on top of it, and Janice has been talking about this on, on uh, Sunday mornings in her teaching and stuff, when it comes to the presence of God, you t- if you study this throughout Scripture, many times it is associated with worship. But why do we worship anything? There's a thankfulness implied there. You see, when you worship something, like let's just say that you had, this would would be kind of a a, a stretch a little bit, but you know, somebody looks up to a pro ball player or whatever, and they know all their stats and they know everything about them. There's an element of thankfulness for their existence, and that is why they admire them so much. I want to be like him. I want to be like her. But you know what we don't want to be like? We don't want to be like God. Because we're not thankful. And this idea of thankfulness is all throughout Scripture. But it's on a couple of different levels. Let's look at this first of all. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Let's look at verse 16. It says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Alright, now let's break this down. Pretty simple verse. A couple statements here by Paul. Rejoice always. You notice it doesn't say rejoice when it's good. Be glad. Hey, things went your way. You should be happy. Rejoice about that. It also talks about always, meaning that when things are bad, we rejoice in the things of God. Okay? Number two is we pray without ceasing. No, what we do is we we say a prayer before a meal. We have a little prayer time, maybe throughout the day once in a while. But what, what this is talking about is always stay in fellowship with God. Communication with God. In everything, we give thanks. That means the good and the bad. Because this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So if you're asking me what the will of God for your life is, how about we just start here? What if we actually started doing these things? Just these did nothing else. What if we made these such a part of our life? What would that do to our attitude, what would that do to our daily walk in life, what would that do when we went to the grocery store, what would that do when we went to the gas station, when we went to work, when we went to visit friends, what would that do, it would change everything, the problem is, the only time we're thankful for the goodness of God is when we get something that we've wanted. You ever notice that? You look If you're on Facebook, I know some of you are, some of you aren't, that's okay. But if you're on Facebook, every time somebody gets a job, a house, a car, they get into a college, whatever, like, God is so good, period, for this. But is that what makes God's good, God good? Of course it's not. Why aren't we posting things like, man, it was an awful day today. God is good. Did you guys see God's not dead? Right? Do you remember the, uh, that black African guy that came to visit the one pastor and the pastor's kind of having a rotten day? And he's always that glass half full guy, the guy that you want to smack in the face most of the time, you know? And it didn't matter what was going on, he's like, hey, God is good. You know? What if we just had this attitude of gratitude? That rhyme that wasn't intentional. I didn't make that up. What, 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 if, what if we changed the way we did things? You see, we rejoice always when we get what we want. We pray without ceasing when we need something or we want something. And we are thankful when that something arrives. That's it. But look at this in 1 Chronicles chapter 29. This is David talking. Starting in verse 10, it says, Therefore, David blessed the Lord before all the assembly. So that's the nation of Israel. And David said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, the majesty. For all that is in heaven and earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Now, think about this. He's worshiping God here. He is saying, blessed are you. He's saying, thank you. But what is he thanking him for? Not what he's done but for who He is. Blessed are you, Lord God, for you are great, and you are powerful, and you are glorious, and victory, and in majesty, and all that is in heaven and earth belongs to you. Yours is the kingdom, and you are exalted. Both riches and honor, they come from you, and you reign over all. And your hand is power, and your hand is might. In your hand is to make great, and to give strength to all. Now therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. But who am I, and who are my people, that we should be able to offer so willingly as this, for all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. He's thanking God for who He is. For no other reason. What if we had that? He's like, who am I? And who are these people that we get to offer so willingly as this? Because it belongs to you. You're allowing us, God, to be a part of it. You're allowing us to worship you. What if there were confines on the worship of God? What if it was limited? Would we be more thankful? If we were not allowed to just meet freely anytime, anywhere, and spend time together as the body of Christ in the presence of God, but there were restrictions on it, would it be more satisfying in the moments that we could get together than the fact that we can do it whenever we want? Of course it would, because there'd be a scarcity to it. And suddenly, we're more thankful for who God is and not just what He's done for us. We need to be thankful for what He's done for us. But it's His character. What is it? His greatness, power, glory, victory, majesty. Heaven and earth belongs to Him. His kingdom. He's exalted over all. He provides riches and He provides honor. He reigns over all. He's mighty. He makes one great. And He gives strength. And yet this is the character of who God is. When we say God is love, you need no other reason to worship Him. But yet we do. The music's got to be right. Atmosphere's got to be right. My emotions have got to be right. I got to have nothing else going on in order for that to be right. You see, because we're ungrateful. Look at Psalm 107, verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good and his mercy endures forever. Why do you give thanks to the Lord? Because He is good. Goodness is not because of something He's done. Goodness is one of His attributes. There is no good if there is no God, because there is no standard if there is no God. So He didn't just pick and choose what was good. He is good. And because of Jesus, we can measure up. Psalm 95, verse 2. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. Did somebody make God the King? Did He make Him the Lord of Lords? No. It is who He is. So we should come before His presence with thanksgiving. And we should shout joyfully to Him with psalms or songs or anything. But we don't. We come through and we come in on a Sunday morning together and are like, oh, I don't like that song. I can't wait till the next song. Why do they sing that in that key? I mean, really, is that necessary? We complain about it, but yet we get the opportunity to worship God because of who He is. You see, one of the questions we're trying to figure out is what happened to the power of God? We quit caring about it. We've come near to Him with our mouth, but our hearts aren't near to Him. Because we're not willing to lay down all aside and just be thankful. Psalm 106, verse 1, praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, and His mercy endures forever. Thank goodness for that. Because man, do we need it. You see, He is good. And it's because He's good that His mercy endures. It's a result of who He is. Every action God takes is a basis of His character. Psalm 100 verse 1. Make a joyful shout to the Lord all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and into His courts with praise. Be thankful to Him and bless His name. For the Lord is good, His mercy is everlasting, and His truth endures to all generation. God is good, God is love, God is truth, God is merciful. All of these reasons that we should be thankful. And yet we're not. You see what we do is we as long as things are going well, we are grateful. As long as the church is healthy, if the money's good and the people are tending, we just kind of sit back and like, okay, things are happening, this is good. But what happens when things get rough? Who presses in more? God, I need you more now than ever. I'm going to worship you no matter what. Look at Paul and Silas sitting in prison. And what do they do? Yeah, we'll just worship God. It doesn't matter. Dan and Nikki Huff is an example. One of the ministries that we support that drive all over the place. If they blow a tire on the interstate, they're like, okay God, we're here. What do you got for us? While they're waiting on someone to come and rescue them. Because every moment, they're just going to give thanks, good or bad. They've got a heart of worship. We could use more folks like them. Because I don't know about you, I get caught up in the day-to-day. I'm extremely routine. I like things a certain way, and I don't like things that get in that way. So I want it laid out, a certain pattern, and all of that. But what if I just took time and said, Okay, God, I'm just going to spend time in your presence today. I do that. Do I do it every day? No because the phone starts ringing or anything like that starts happening, I get distracted. I'm grateful when God does something that I'm looking for. But do I show that gratitude unless I get what I want? What does that sound like to you? One of your kids. You remember those times when those kids became teenagers? And you thought, we're going to have a funeral before we have a graduation. You remember that? What is it about it? They're ingrates. Not all of them. You guys are excluded from this because you all back there, you all are awesome, okay? You are the exception to the rule, all right? That might be uh, thus saith the Lord or something, I don't know. But, but the thing is, is that what happens is they think that their home is your home. And yeah, you may have worked hard to provide the things that are necessary for them, but they don't care. They'll just use it. It doesn't matter. You remember that time that you filled the fridge on Monday and by Wednesday it was empty? Because they don't care that you're on a budget. All they care is they want food. And copious amounts of it. You see, they're not grateful for the things that they have. They're not grateful for what you've done for them. And take that on that minuscule level and just look at God. Boy, God, you created everything. And in all things, you created good, but we screwed it up. But yet, even despite that, even though we have spit in your face countless times, you still sent your Son into the earth to die for us so that we could spend eternity with you. And we've given our life for you. And we were thankful when that happened. But now I'm in. I don't really need you right now. I'm doing okay. We would never say that, but that really is how we think. Because that's how we act. You see, we get caught up in ourselves, because ourselves have become the center of worship in our lives. It's no longer God. Look at Numbers chapter 14. In verse 1, it says, All the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness. Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword that our wives and children should have become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us select a leader, and we're going back to Egypt. Now think about this. You've got to understand the context of Scripture here. You've got a people group who were in Egypt, and they were doing pretty well. Thanks to Joseph and these other guys, they were doing pretty well. And then all of a sudden, one of the pharaohs gets in power and realizes... These these Israelites, they're uh, going to be a bunch of them. We need to put these guys under, otherwise they're going to take over. We can't have that. So they put them into bondage and slavery. And for 400 years, they're in bondage and in slavery. And yet, their needs were met. They didn't know who Yahweh was because that had been lost. But God appears to Moses, who supernaturally survives birth. They tried to kill him. He floats down a river in a basket Pharaoh's daughter finds him, raises him. He recognizes he's an Israelite. He flees the kingdom, which takes a lot, because who walks away from that? You're set for life. You don't have to worry about nothing. And then God appears to him in a burning bush and says, listen, this is what I need you to do. And so he does it. And to prove to Pharaoh that there is one God, and he is higher than all the other gods, he sends these ten plagues, which was a spit in the face of all the Egyptian gods that were there, finishing with the angel of death. And God warned the Israelites, now listen, here's what I need you to do. I need you to get your lamb, spotless, perfect, no blemish whatsoever, no broken bones. You need to kill this thing, you need to consume this thing, and you need to take its blood, and you need to apply it on your doorpost. And if you do that, then when that judgment comes from God, it won't touch you. Your children, your animals, all of that will be just fine. And sure enough, that happened. You, they, they watched all of these things happen, just as Moses said they were going to happen. They watched this, this angel of death come in and destroyed Pharaoh's son and all of this other stuff, and yet, that wasn't enough. So then they get to leave. And then they watch the Red Sea split. They've got this dust cloud that forms, that protects them from the Pharaoh. And they get across, and as the uh, Egyptians go across, the waters close. What more convincing do you need that God is on your side? Just do what He says. But that wasn't enough that they get to the promised land. They see giants they don't like and say, no, we can't do this. Why has God brought us out here to die? We were better in Egypt. Yeah, we were in bondage and we were in slavery, but at least we didn't starve to death. At least we weren't going to be killed by the sword. And so here you get this part, and they're all ready to turn their back on God. Where's their gratefulness? Where's their thankfulness? They're not thankful because it's not the way they want it in the moment. Sounds a lot like us. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 45. Moreover, all these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed because you did not obey the, obey the voice of the Lord to keep His commandments and His statutes which He commanded you. And they shall be upon you for a sign and a wonder and on your descendants forever. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of everything, therefore you shall serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you in hunger, in thirst and nakedness, and in need of everything. He will put a yoke of iron on your neck until He has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose language you will not understand, a nation of fierce countenance which does not respect the elderly nor show favor to the young and they shall eat the increase of your livestock and the produce of your land until you are destroyed. They shall not leave you grain or new wine or oil or the increase of your cattle or the offspring of your flocks until they have destroyed you. This is a judgment. This is a warning. From God to the Israelites, keep my commandments. If you don't, this is what's going to happen. When they get into the promised land, and that's exactly what took place, is they get into the promised land and they didn't They didn't keep God's commandments. They never took the land that they were supposed to. They were supposed to walk into it immediately. They didn't. They disobeyed God all the way around. When God comes down with the Ten Commandments, after God had just cut this covenant with them, they already broke it by worshiping a false god. And then you see this whole pattern in Judges. Look at this. Judges chapter 2, starting in verse 7. It says, So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua... And all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. Remember, Joshua took them into the Promised Land. Who had seen all the great works of the Lord, which He had done for Israel. They watched them all. Everything that God had done was amazing. Could you imagine seeing all of that? Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died. When he was 110 years old, they buried him uh, within the border of his inheritance in Timnath Heres in the mountains of Ephraim, on the north side of the Mount of Gash. When all the generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. Now, stop there for a minute. Why didn't they know the Lord? It wasn't passed down. You see, these people watched it happen. They knew who God was. Yeah, they disobeyed Him all the time, but they knew who He was. But instead of taking the time to pass that on to their children, they didn't. They were caught up in whatever was going on. Now watch verse 11. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals, which is one of the false gods. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. There's a lot of commandments that have been broken right here. Okay, They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtaroths, and the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, so He delivered them into the hands of the plunderers who despoiled them. And He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity. As the Lord has said, and as the Lord has sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless... The Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hands of those who plundered them. Yet, they would not listen to their judges. But they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. The Lord was moved by pity are too pitied by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And it came to pass that when the judge was dead, that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and to bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings, nor from their stubborn way. Then the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not heeded my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, so that through them I may test Israel, whether they will keep the ways of the Lord, to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. Now, think about this. The fathers of these people had seen all the miracles of God, and they would have, should have told these guys all about this stuff, but it didn't seem like they did, and it doesn't seem like they care, and so they start doing what they wanted. So, there's a pattern in the entire book of Judges, and this is it. Take a look at this. Israel turns from God, and they begin to serve false gods and different idols. God sends judgment against Israel. So Israel begins to repent and cries out to God saying, okay, God, I'm so sorry. We need to come back to you. So what does God do? He raises up a judge to deliver him. Think of a, a judge as a, a deliverer. Samson was a judge. Uh, Deborah, Delilah. No, Deborah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Gideon. I mean, some of those guys, those are names that you might recognize. So God raises up somebody to rescue them from the situation, even though they don't deserve it. And so as soon as he does that, What happens? We rinse and repeat. Israel turns to other gods. Then God sends judgment against them. Israel doesn't like it, so they repent and cry out to God. So God raises up a judge and brings them out of that back to a time of good. And then what do they do? They start all over again. This is the pattern in the entire book of of, uh, Judges. This is the pattern throughout the entire Old Testament. And this is the pattern today. Because what we're seeing here is the heart of a human being. The heart is wicked and corrupt from its youth. The heart of human being is what's in it for me. We will go and cry out to God when there is something that we need. But we won't change for Him. And we will hold so firmly to our deeply held religious beliefs of of the past or a denomination that we went to, or whatever the case may be. I'm not saying all denominations are bad, but, but we hold on to that stuff. We never question whether it's scripturally relevant or not. And yet, when God shows up, we're like, Okay, God, I'm so grateful to you. And yet, as soon as things get good, we forget about them. That is why you see the church growing in in third world countries in places place where uh, the gospel is being fought against versus a nation like the United States and a nation like Europe where it was kind of free and you could do what you want. China's got churches growing underground all the time. You know what the best thing that could happen to the church in America? Is they changed the laws where we can no longer worship freely. Because then we would take it Seriously. We're not grateful to God. If you woke up this morning and had breath in your lungs, you should be grateful. If you're a born-again believer of God, you should be grateful and thankful. And it should permeate out of everything that you do. When we sing these songs, that I want to know you, I want to hear your voice, I want to know you more, that is a result of the work that God has done in your life. And we should be grateful, but we're not. We take it for granted. I'm in. What more do I need? I'm good. I don't need to press in. I'll go when I want to go, I'll do what I want to do, and if things get bad, I'll turn to God. Look at Luke chapter 17, verse 11. Now it happened as he went to Jerusalem, and he passed through the midst of the Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were leopards, who stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And so when he saw them, he said to them, Go, show yourselves to the priest." And so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned. And with a loud voice, he glorified God and fell down on his face, at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered and said, were not ten cleansed? But there are only nine. Or where are the nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to them, arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now imagine this. See, what's happening here is the lepers had to stay afar off. It was the law. They're leper colonies. They could not come in because they were unclean. And this was a disease given to them by God, is the belief of the Israelites. And so that's why they shout to him from a long ways away. But if you were cleansed of leprosy in any way, or you believed you were, you had to go and present yourself before the high priest, and he would declare that you are cleansed. That's why all of this stuff is going on. And so, they cry out to Jesus, Lord, have mercy on us. Remember, in their minds, this is caused by God. Therefore, only God can take this away. And they are crying out to Jesus, Jesus, we need you. We're cast aside. Society wants nothing to do with us, and we have no hope here. So they cry out to Jesus. Jesus says, okay, go show yourself to the priest. That's all they had to do. And as they went, they were cleansed. Now you would think boy, they'd all come crawling back just thanking Jesus for what He did. They didn't. Only one of them did. Why didn't the other nine? They got what they needed. The goodness of God and the necessity of it is over. I got what I needed. When you're born again, you got what you needed. We're not thankful at all. If you were grateful for what God did for you, Your actions would reflect that. Your words would reflect that. Everything you do would reflect that. You see, because you would never miss an opportunity to give thanks to God. You'd never wish an opportunity to worship God. Everything, every day would look differently for you because you'd always be talking about the goodness of God. Every day would be an opportunity to share the love of Christ with somebody because you're so grateful for what He's done that you just want everybody to experience it. You ever found, like, let's just use this as an example. You go to a restaurant. It's the most amazing meal you've ever had. And you end up telling everybody about it. I gotta tell you about this place that I ate at. I mean, it was amazing. You have got to check this place out. And we'll talk about it, because the experience was good. And we want everybody to know Do we do that about God? Oh my goodness, no. What would happen if we did? You see, what's happened is we've gotten so comfortable that we've become ungrateful. The best thing that could happen to us is we got uncomfortable. We take everything for granted. You know, think about this in your your marriage. Husbands take their wives for granted. Wives take their husbands for granted. They're always going to be there. If the wife stays home, the house is going to be clean. The meals are going to be cooked. Children are going to be kept for the most part. I mean, as best as they can, because children are unkept, okay? They're little animals. And the husband goes and work. It could be reverse roles, whatever. It doesn't matter. It's we just assume that that's always going to be that way, so we take it for granted. And yet we do the same thing with God. We do the same thing in ministry. Same thing happens here. Not here, here. The same thing happens in the church. Is that God sends one of the five-fold gifts into a church, or like a pastor, or whatever. Instead of being thankful for that, for whatever he's, he's sent to you, we just begin to take it for granted. Oh, He'll always be there. I don't need to do this. I don't need to do that. You know, should we do that? Of course not. Should we tell our loved ones that we appreciate them and we're thankful for them? Of course we should, but we don't because we take everything for granted. Because our lives are so easy. So easy. I mean, imagine if you, you know, in order to eat meat tomorrow, you've got to go out and kill something. And before you killed it, you had to raise it. I mean, Yoli does that on a daily basis. <laughs> you want to watch Primitive Living go out to her house. She'll have tilapia for order before long, but, but still. But, but we're not grateful. We're not grateful to God. We're only grateful when He gives us what we want. That's when God is good. We need to get past that. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 8. I'm almost done. Deuteronomy chapter 8, I'm going to start in verse 1. This is Moses. The book of Deuteronomy is kind of the last hurrah the last for Moses before he dies. The children of Israel are getting ready to go into the promised land. And he is giving them a stern warning. Watch what he says here. Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe. That you may live, and that you may multiply. And you go in and you possess that land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. How did they know they could possess it? Because God said He's going to give it to them, right? They knew His character is one of faithfulness. You sh- and you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness. You notice they keep going back to this, this uh, Exodus event where they leave Egypt. All these 40 years that He led us to humble you and test to you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. That's for their benefit, not His. So He humbled you and He allowed you to hunger, but He fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that He might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Every word from God is how we live our lives. In other words, God had always provided provision, and He promised provision, and therefore they lived off of that. The manna was simply the manifestation of that provision, but they lived off the word that God had given them. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Remember, they're marching around the, uh, yeah. You should know in your hearts that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. Therefore, so because of all this, because of the 40 years that God has been with us, because of everything that we've seen, the provision that He's provided, you should keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in His ways and to fear Him. Now fear means to reverence. Not be afraid of, but to reverence Him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. A land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs that flow out of the valleys and hills. A land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranate. A land of olive oil and honey. A land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing. A land whose stones are iron, and out of those hills you can dig copper. And when you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which He has given you. I mean, who wouldn't want that? You could put that in terms, you're going to grow up in a country where you can worship God freely, where opportunity is whatever you want it to be, where you can go to any school that you desire, where you can do what you want and start something from scratch and grow it into a company, to grow it into a business, to do whatever you want, to climb a corporate ladder, whatever you want, you can be provided for you. But you just be sure that you thank God because ultimately it's God who provides. This all sounds good so far. He's telling them, like, guys, when you get in there, this is going to be amazing, like nothing they had ever experienced before. But then verse 11, but beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments, His judgments, and His statute, which I command you today, lest, when you have eaten and are full, and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply, and your silver and your gold are multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied when your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led you through the great and terrible wilderness in which were fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty land where there was no water, who brought water for you out of a flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna which your fathers didn't know, that He might humble you and that He might test you to do you good in the end. Then you say in your heart, My power. And the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth, that He may establish His covenant, which He swore to your fathers, as, if it, as it is this day. Then it shall be, if you by any means forget the Lord your God, and follow other gods, and serve them, and you worship them, I might testify against you this day that you shall surely perish, as the nations which the Lord destroys before you, so you shall perish because you would not be obedient to the voice of the Lord your God. Think about that. This is exactly where we are today as the body of Christ, at least in this country. Because we are fed and we are taken care of. We are not thankful. And the beautiful thing, guys, we're in a new covenant based on better promises, and we're not thankful. Jesus gave all for us, and we're not thankful. We're no longer grateful to God that we just say, thank you, Lord, for all that you've done. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. You see, the main accelerator of ingratitude in this country is a result of commercialism. It's because of commercialism that we have everything. We've got this idea and we're so caught up in it that if you, you work so hard that you deserve that, that new car, that new house, that vacation, wherever you want to take it. We've got this mentality. It's caused us to believe in ideology that if we don't acquire these luxuries, these extravagances, somehow life is just unfair. There's a movement going on today to take from the rich and give to the poor. Never asking the question is, how did the rich get there to begin with? But it's not fair. They don't need all of that. I don't care what they did to get it. I just know that I want it. It's almost like they feel uh, they deserve it, even though they did nothing to earn it. And that is what we've done with what the Lord has done for us today. We feel like we deserve salvation. We don't. We deserve death. We've broken the commandment. But we're not grateful to God. We've walked away from We don't keep His commandments. We don't follow His statutes. We just mix them in wherever they're convenient and wherever they're comfortable. I'll add God here. I'll add God there. Because if we were truly grateful and thankful and worshiped Him with all of our lives, our words would be different. Our actions would be different. The things that we do in life would be different. Look at this quote by Abraham Lincoln. On a day, he was calling for Thanksgiving and fasting. He says, "...we have been the recipients of the choicest blessings of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth and power, as no other nation ever has grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Does that not sound like Deuteronomy chapter 8? It's the same thing. God's only good when we get what we want. Lincoln recognized this. And this is during a time of war. I mean, the Civil War is going on. This is a powerful statement. He gave this speech on the wealth, prosperity, and the peace that was experienced by the U.S. is far greater than anything else and any nation had ever seen or experienced because this was a nation that was founded on gratefulness to God. Because God was all that they had. They went to an unknown land to set up colonies, and established people group, and in a place they didn't know how they would live and they didn't know what they would do. And yet, pride, selfishness, and ingratitude had sunk in. You see, we take all of it for granted. We want to show up to church and we just want to give me the word, teach me something. I want to hear something new today. We're not grateful for that word. We're not grateful for the, uh, the sacrifices that were made to get you that Word. The people that were killed in the process of making a Bible that you could actually read. We're not grateful. There's a video, I wish I'd, I should have brought it up, where they shipped some Bibles in a suitcase to China. It didn't have any Bibles. It was an underground church. And that suitcase shows up and they open it and all these Chinese people flock to it and grab a Bible and they're crying and they're kissing it. Because they are so thankful for the first time they have the Word of God that they can read on their own. How many Bibles do you have at home? A lot. How many of y'all got the apps on your phone? You got it with you all the time. We're not grateful for it. We are in the most prosperous country that has ever existed and we take it for granted. We're always concerned with what we can do. And the problem is, it's because we've forgotten what it meant to get here. I want to read you this. Psalm 77, it's the last verse, starting in verse 10. And I said, this is my anguish. But I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will surely remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will also meditate on all your work and talk of all your deeds. You see, they would set up these, these monuments and when they saw them, they were to remind him of what God has done. We don't do that today. We don't have little things that we look at it's like, that was the time that God came through. We have to go back to the beginning. We can't worship a God that we aren't thankful for. If you have no reason to be thankful, if you're in this room and you're a born-again believer of God, you have everything to be thankful for. Everything. Because if nothing else in your life happens, if you never earn another dollar, if nothing else ever goes right for you, if life goes to hell in a handbasket, it doesn't matter because you will be in the presence of God. Why don't we just say thank you? We don't do it because we're too caught up.